I want you to imagine with me something that for some of you may not be too far in the future, and that is, imagine that your kid or one of your grandkids has grown up and is going off to college, and you're, of course, praying for them, encouraging them. You, you've prepared them for this moment, but you want to make sure that when they get off to wherever, wherever it is that they are going, that they find a healthy church to be a part of. And so to kind of help help get them started, you start looking at some of the churches in the, the town where they're going. And because it's a college town, there are lots of churches and lots of options. And so you start looking at church websites and you look at you know information about the pastors and maybe you sample a few sermons from different churches and and hopefully you look at their statement of faith that section on their website where they say this is what we believe and you start looking through that statement and you're looking to make sure that they believe that the bible is the word of god and you're looking to make sure they believe in the trinity one god who eternally exists in three persons you're looking to make sure they believe that we're saved only uh, by grace and through faith and apart from our works and we're saved only through Christ through his death and resurrection and all those core doctrines of the Christian faith to make sure all those things line up but as you're reading through this statement of faith you notice that one section of the statement of faith is a whole lot longer than the rest of it and that gets your attention why is this section of this statement of faith longer than all the others? Well, there are some different reasons why that might be the case. Right? There's some not so good reasons and some good reasons. So not so good reasons, maybe this church is really, really emphasizing something that's not that important. And because most people don't think it's you know, a, a central doctrine of the faith, but, but this church does, they're really trying to persuade you that that everybody else has kind of gotten this wrong and only this church has gotten this right. That's a red flag, right? That's, that's probably not good. Or maybe um, there's a good reason why this section of their statement of faith is so long. And that's because they recognize whatever section this is that you're looking at is central and of chief importance and so they want to make sure that they are emphasizing what is most important what is most central and they can't do that in just a few words and so they're they're going to talk at length about this core doctrine of the christian faith to make sure that everybody understands what we believe now when you look at the apostles creed you might notice that we see something like that in the Apostles' Creed. There is a section of the Apostles' Creed that is a whole lot longer than the other sections. The Apostles' Creed falls into three sections, basically. The first section is about God the Father. The second section is about Christ the Son. And the third section is about the Holy Spirit and then about the church and salvation. Right? Why is the middle section about Jesus so much longer than the section about God the Father and the section about the Holy Spirit? Is it because Jesus is more important than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit? No, of course not, right? Because they're all equally and fully God. There's not, not one person in the Trinity who's more important than the other. But there are a couple of reasons. We can't know for sure why this creed ended up with this section being the most important. But there are a couple of reasons we could guess at why this section is longer than the others. And one is that the section about Christ 
is the section that gets to the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith. It's not that Jesus is more important than the Father or than the Spirit, but that the Father sent the Son to be the one to become man, to take our place, to die on the cross, to rise again, to be exalted to His right hand, and to come again one day. And so it's longer because it's central, because not Jesus is more important than the Father or the Son, but what Jesus did is how the Father... Or Jesus is not more important than the Father and the Spirit. But what Jesus accomplished is what the Father sent Him to do and what the Spirit applies to our lives when we have faith in Christ and that is that salvation that Christ accomplished. That's a good reason why this section is longer than the other. The other possible reason why this section about Christ is longer than the others is because this is where the rub is. This is where Christianity chiefly differs from every other religion. We believe in Christ. We we believe He's the Messiah. That separates Christianity from Judaism. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, that He's our only Savior, that He rose again from the dead. Nobody else, no other religion believes that. Not Muslims, not the Jews. they, They don't put their faith in Jesus as the crucified and risen Messiah. This is where Christianity is most distinct. So as we begin looking at the core doctrines of the Christian faith through the Apostles' Creed, specifically the section about Christ starting this morning, we're going to look today at four things that the Apostles' Creed tells us in this first line about Jesus. First of all, that we believe in Jesus. As basic as that is, it is of supreme importance that we believe in Jesus. And what do we believe about Jesus? We believe that He's the Christ. We believe that He's the only begotten Son of God. And we believe that He is our Lord. Every word of that line is extremely important. Not just because it's the first line in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus, right? but because these are truths, these are doctrines that the Bible emphasizes as being of first importance, chief importance. So, first of all, it is central and essential that we confess our faith in Christ and that we recognize at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to be able to say, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. The Bible makes it clear all over the New Testament that you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in Jesus. That everything revolves around whether or not you believe in Jesus. Literally, our eternity is determined by whether or not we believe in Jesus. So, for example, in John chapter 3, in one of the most famous passages anywhere in the Bible, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And it goes on, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's almost impossible to miss 
in that set of sentences that what is of chief importance is whether or not somebody believes in Jesus. It says if you don't believe in Jesus, you're already under condemnation. But if you do believe in Jesus, you're delivered from condemnation. God gives you eternal life through the gift of His Son. When Peter went to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 and preached the gospel to Cornelius and the others who had gathered there, toward the end of his sermon, now I don't know that he intended this to be the end, but, but the Holy Spirit came upon the people right after he said this, and, and so the sermon was over, right? Because they were converted and it was time for them to be baptized. But near the end of his sermon in Acts 10.43, Peter says about Jesus, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Even in the Old Testament, Peter's saying, all the prophets say this, that whoever believes in Jesus has their sins forgiven through him. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to, you don't have to keep the law. You don't have to observe all the Ten Commandments perfectly. You have to believe in Jesus, and then your sins are forgiven. Paul, in Galatians 2.16, says it as fully and thoroughly, I think, as Paul knows how to say it when he says this. He says, we know that a person is justified, excuse me, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right, by the way, um, today is Reformation Day, October 31st. This is the day that uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg and he didn't know it at the time when he did it, but historians looking back say that was the moment that the, sort of was the spark that lit the flame that became the Reformation. And at the heart of the Reformation in uh, the 1500s was, the, was clarifying this conviction, this biblical teaching. Right, that we are justified, we are made right with God, we have our sins forgiven, not by any works that we or anybody else does, but simply through faith in Christ and the work that Christ did once for all when he died upon the cross. That's the gospel, right? That's what was at the heart of the Reformation. So when we say the Apostles' Creed, right, we are confessing that we believe in Jesus. That's essential. That is central. But what is it that we believe about Jesus? Because it is possible to get Jesus wrong. It is possible to be using the name Jesus and be talking about somebody entirely different than who the Bible is talking about. For example, John, the Apostle John in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, he warns about those who talk about Jesus, but a Jesus who didn't come in the flesh. So don't listen to those guys. Those are false prophets, false teachers. I'm talking about another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus that the apostles walked and talked with, that they saw and heard and touched. We've got to make sure we're talking about the right Jesus. So what do we believe about Jesus? Well, first of all, we believe that he is the Christ. And what does that mean? That's a, that's a word we use a lot that we may not have thought a whole lot about. 
The first thing we need to know is that Christ is a title, not a name. And so Christ is not Jesus' last name. It sounds like it the way we say it, right? Jesus Christ. It sounds like it's his last name. It's not his last name. It's a title. And that title means something. And it means something because this is, something, uh, this is a figure, whoever the Christ would be, is a figure that the Bible has been telling us about ever since Genesis chapter 3. Right? So this title, Christ, means the anointed one. It's the same word as the word Messiah. Right? Messiah is an Old Testament word. Christ is a New Testament word. Old Testament, New Testament written in different languages, but they're talking about the same thing, the same person. Those two words mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. So, for example, in John 1, when the disciples are first being introduced to Jesus, and Andrew uh, has met Jesus, and he goes to tell his brother Peter about Jesus, it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, John tells us. And then later in John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, right, the Samaritan woman, in her conversation with Jesus, she says to him at one point, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then it says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah you've all been waiting on. Andrew and Peter were waiting on the Messiah. Even the Samaritan woman was waiting on the Messiah. The Jews as a whole were waiting on the Messiah. They were waiting for this figure that God had promised all throughout the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when he said to the serpent that there's going to be a a child born to the woman who's going to crush your head. All the way through to the, the prophets Uh, Isaiah and Micah and so on. This is the figure that they were told to wait for. There's a whole lot that the Old Testament says about the Messiah, but if we could sum it all up, here's what the Old Testament says the Messiah will be and do. The Messiah is going to be a Savior King. That's what He's going to do. He's going to save His people, and He's going to reign over them as king. He's going to deliver them from their enemies. He's going to deliver them from their sins. And he is going to uh, establish the kingdom of God forever. That's what he's going to do. And so we see, for example, in um, Isaiah chapter 9, those verses we often read at Christmas time, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? It says the government is going to be upon his shoulders and he's going to sit upon David's throne. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and so on. Isaiah is building on earlier promises for all through the Old Testament and sort of summing them up and saying, this, who is, this is who is going to come and deliver us. This is what's going to happen when God comes to save us. He's going to send a child who's going to sit on David's throne, who's going to reign forever and establish peace and justice and righteousness. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the one they were all waiting for. And Andrew was saying to Peter, he's here. He's finally come. The one promised in the Old Testament has arrived. There was a moment, though, 
during Jesus' ministry where even John the Baptist was not sure if Jesus really was the Messiah. There were lots of questions and debates swirling about Jesus as we've noticed before, right? Jesus asked his disciples at one point, who, who do people say that I am? And people had all kinds of theories, right, about who Jesus was. John the Baptist at one point sent a message to Jesus through his disciples to ask him this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Not everything Jesus did lined up with what people thought the Messiah was going to do, what they thought it would be like when the Messiah came. But when we confess that we believe in Jesus Christ, in Jesus the Messiah, we are answering John's question saying, there's not another one for us to wait for. Jesus is the one who was to come. He has come. He has fulfilled the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the Messiah. He is God's promised Savior King. And we believe in Him. When we confess those truths, we are also following the example of Peter. When Jesus said, not just, who do people say that I am? But then said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the promised Savior. You're the promised King. We're not waiting any longer because you're here. John wrote his entire gospel to persuade people that Jesus is the Christ. At the end of John, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So to say that Jesus is the Christ, is that, that's, though we say that all the time, that's not a, a throwaway statement. When we say that, we are saying that we believe that everything written about the Messiah in the Old Testament either has been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ or will be fulfilled at Christ's return. That He is the one that we were told to look for and He has come. Now you might also have noticed that both Peter and John in connection with saying Jesus is the Christ, also talk about Him being the Son of God. So that leads us on to the next thing. We believe in Jesus. We believe that He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One from the Old Testament. And we believe that He is the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. Now, only begotten is not a phrase that we run into a lot anymore. Even in uh, our translations of the Bible, you, you may have to go back to the King James Version to encounter that phrase, only begotten. We see it, for example, in John 1, 14, where it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later in verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And it's also in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is so significant about Jesus being 
the only begotten Son of the Father. Well, it means He's the unique Son. It means He's the only Son. That's usually how our more um, modern translations phrase it, right? He's the only Son of God, the only Son of the Father. And His uniqueness is significant, right? Because God didn't have a lot of sons to give. He had one son. And He gave him up for us. God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But as we mentioned in an earlier sermon, we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand this Son language. Jesus did not become God's Son when He was born of the Virgin Mary. He'd always been God's Son. Because He's God. He's the Son of God, but He's God. Eternally God. So that's why John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, that same Word who became flesh, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, before anything was created, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had always eternally existed. God did not become a Father at some point in time. Jesus did not become God's Son at some point in time. He is the eternal Son of God. He's always existed. He's always been God's Son. Now, if that blows your mind a little bit, that's good. That just means you're thinking about God. He's beyond our complete comprehension. But because He's God, He can't have a beginning point. Right? There's a point in time at which He adds humanity to His deity... But there's no point in time at which he begins to exist or begins to be God's son. He is the eternal son of God because he is God the son. Finally, we believe in Jesus. We believe he's the Christ. We believe he's the only begotten son of the father. And we believe that he is our Lord. Our Lord. He's Lord. That's essential That was part of the first Christian sermon ever preached in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back into heaven. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and a crowd gathered and wondered what in the world was going on as all these men were speaking in different languages. And Peter preached about Jesus who had been crucified according to God's plan, but who the people had wickedly handed over to see crucified. And he called on them to repent. And he said this in Acts 2.36. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's not only the Messiah, he is the Lord. Though he was crucified in weakness, it is not because he is weak. He is the ruler. He is the Lord. He is God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, that this is what he preaches. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We preach that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The good news is that if you're a Christian, Jesus is not just Lord, He's your Lord. He's Lord 
for you and not against you. Right? Paul says this over and over. For example, in Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, he says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believing that Jesus is Lord, in other words, is not optional. It's a part of the core Christian confession. That we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That he reigns, that he rules, that he's God. That we are under his authority. Because Jesus is Lord, right? that means his word, what he says is what must govern our lives if we claim to be His followers. If He's the Lord, then what He says goes. When we sign up to follow Jesus, we say, we're going to do what you say. We're going to go where you say we ought to go. We're not going to do the things that you say we ought not to do. And one of the persistent challenges of the Christian life is to make sure that the Lord, Jesus, is the loudest voice in your life. There are a lot of other voices out there telling you what to think, what to do, what to say, etc., etc., etc. But if you say that Jesus is Lord, that means His voice ought to be first and highest, of most importance, ought to be the voice that shapes you above all others. Now, if you're a Christian, right, you have already bowed your knee to Jesus as Lord. You've already confessed that Jesus is Lord. And just as we said from the beginning, right, being a Christian means you believe in Jesus. You turn from your sin. You trust in Christ. You don't have to do any works. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You just acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. You put your trust in Him. That's it. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, Paul says, you'll be saved. But everybody eventually is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible makes that really clear as well. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 11, after it talks about how Jesus humbled Himself and became a man and uh, died on the cross, It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee is going to bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess. And part of what they're going to say is, Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's God. Far, far better to confess that now. To recognize that now. To acknowledge that now. To call upon Him now. So that you don't meet Him on the last day as the Lord against you. Because you haven't been against Him. And refuse to repent. And refuse to listen to Him. And refuse to trust Him. And refuse to follow Him. 
Better to bow your knee to Him now, to confess your sin now, to ask for His mercy now, to receive His grace and love and forgiveness and fellowship and reconciliation with God and all that He purchased on the cross for everyone who believes in Him. Far better to receive that now so that He is not Lord against you, but that He is Lord for you. As Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if you belong to Christ, He has not only died for you, not only was raised for you, but is right now even interceding for you. So what have you to fear if the Lord is on your side? So when we believe in Jesus, when we confess confess our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saying that we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We believe He's the one God promised to send, to save His people from their sins, to deliver them from their enemies, and to reign over them for their good forever. We believe He's the one who's going to set all things right again. When we confess that He's the Son of God, we're reminding ourselves of the precious gift that the Father gave for us, that He would send His only Son to take on flesh, suffer death in our place, and rise again that we might have eternal life in Him. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus reigns, that He's been exalted to God's right hand, that He rules, that He's God, that He is sovereign, that He is in charge over all. And so we have nothing to fear because the One who reigns over all is reigning and ruling for our good. And we're reminding ourselves when we confess that Jesus is Lord, where our ultimate allegiance lies. It's with the King of the universe, the eternal Son of God, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let's pray.